No, no, never. You should never wash my feet. Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. One of you is going to betray me. What are you, who, who is it? It's the one I'm going to give this piece of bread to. What are you talking about? You can't go with me now. Why can't I follow you now? I'll lay my life down for you. You will disown me three times. Peter, what are you, what are you talking about? And you know the way to where I am going. We don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? I am the way and the truth and the life. When everything is ready, I will come and get you. All right, um, well, quick poll. How many of you in this room are like car people? So like you like cars, you know cars, you enjoy looking at car stuff. Any car people in here? Okay, cool, this is interesting. How many of you are the complete opposite and are not car people? Anyone? Oh, there's an interesting statistic here. In the first service, there was like no one who was not car people. You all came to the second service. I wonder what that speaks sociologically. Maybe non-car people don't like getting up in the mornings. Um, but I'm, I'm in that camp. Eh? I'm just not a car person. I don't understand a lot about them. And when I hang out with car peoples or when I go to the mechanic, I just feel like a moron. You know, all the guys are like, oh, cars. And I'm like, yeah, the, sounds like the flangelator has been penetrated in the drive shaft. Uh, that alternate, alternator fluid's gone brown. That's what it is. That's the issue. Um, and I, I, I find it so difficult. And so for me, taking my car in for service, like I know I should do it, but I hate it, eh? I hate, because in my head, my car is this magical thing that just will work perfectly until it doesn't. And then if it breaks, I take it in, they fix it, and then it works fine. But if I take it in for a service, then they're bound to find something wrong, and then I have to be in that humiliating position of not knowing what they're talking about, saying, oh yeah, I fixed that, not knowing what it is. And it's, it, it's, a, it's an uncomfortable experience. And now, some of you are like, Colin, you should get your car serviced, you should know better. Yeah, well, how do you do with dentists? How many of you go in for the regular checkup at the dentist? Yeah? Oh, you do. How many of you, when you go in for like something, they're like, oh, you should get a regular checkup. You're like, no, I'm just going to wait until my tooth falls out and then you can fix it, right? We probably do the same with doctors. I mean, it can be anything. It can be car services. It can be dentists. It can be doctors. It can be budgeting. It can be any of these things where you have to go for a checkup. Well, we often don't like going for checkups, eh? Because we like to just assume things are working fine. But anyone who works in any of these fields, whether you're a mechanic or a dentist or a doctor, you know that... Life goes better when you regularly come in for a checkup just to see how things are going, eh? So today, as we look at this text, it provides an opportunity for us to have our own little bit of a spiritual checkup because it's a theme that I think we're all familiar with and we're, you know, we kind of know a bit about, but if we don't come in regularly for checkups, we can often go off in crazy, weird, or different directions. And so today, I want us to take a chance just to engage with the Scripture, engage with what Jesus is saying, and just for you as you listen and as you engage, think about have a link, having a little checkup of how you're doing in this area. So, we are in the Upper Room series. If you've not been here before, what the series is about is it's a take it from the Gospel of John, and right about nearing the end of Jesus' life and ministry, he goes up into an Upper Room and celebrates one last meal with all of his disciples, and it's kind of like his big parting meal. It actually is this beautiful, long speech where Jesus talks about all these things. And so we're kind of walking through that. So we're only a few weeks in, and for those of you who have been here, uh, basically, we're jumping in on what is the probably most awkward dinner ever. Just the most uncomfortable process for everyone. Because, you know, they're eating, and then a couple weeks ago, we realized that in mid-meal, Jesus gets up, takes off his clothes, and starts touching people's feet. 
which is just bound to make anyone feel uncomfortable. And then last week, Monica talked about how right after that, it went into this passage where Jesus talked about how one of them in the room would betray him, and then we encountered Judas, and Judas has to leave the room, and, and it's, it's weird. Like, if you're at that dinner, Jesus has just gotten naked, nearly naked, touched your feet, and then told you a betrayer's in the room, you'd be like, what is going on? And it's at that point that we're jumping in again today. So we're jumping into what's just called like a farewell discourse. It's like Jesus' goodbye speech. It's his, he knows he's going away, he knows he's moving on, so he takes this one last opportunity to say everything he needs to say, the most important thing he wants to leave his disciples with, he wants to communicate here in this message. And so he would jump in. So it jumps in here, and we're just going to walk through it together. Oh, there it is. So when he was gone, obviously it's Judas. So Judas has just left the room. No one's quite sure why, and everyone's like, what is, what's happening? Jesus now goes into the speech, and he starts it off this way. Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. How many of us understood that? Right? Super confusing, and I reckon the disciples are the same. So what Jesus is doing here is he's jumping on a theme that's come through in John, and it came through a little bit when we talked about the foot washing. But that first bit, now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. What John is saying here, and he's been saying it throughout the whole gospel, is that this. If you look at Jesus, you're seeing God. And if you want to think about what God is like, you should look at Jesus. Now, I wish we could do a whole sermon on this because this is massive. Because we all have weird thoughts about God. But what John's trying to say is, if when you think about God, when I say those words, if you're picturing anything other than what Jesus is showing you, then you're thinking about the wrong thing. So that's what Jesus is starting off saying here. It continues the theme. My whole life, everything that I've done, the teachings that Jesus has done, the miracles... It's all been revealing God perfectly. Now, if God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. So what Jesus has done is he's moving from past tense, saying, hey, in my life, in my actions, in my words, you can see the Father. Now he goes future tense and saying, "There's the hour is coming where God will fully glorify the Son and the Father will be fully glorified through the Son. So he's going from his past life pointing towards his death. Right? He's looking towards the cross. And again, the disciples have no idea what this means because they don't know that he's going to die. They just know he's pointing towards something. So Jesus is saying again, and this is a great theme in John, the cross isn't a failure. It's not a hiccup in the plan. God's glory is going to be most fully seen in the cross. You thought you saw God's glory in the feeding of the fish and all those other miracles? Well, you haven't seen anything until you've seen the cross. So this is what Jesus is getting at. So then he moves on, and I think Jesus can understand that his disciples are naturally like disturbed, <laughs> uncomfortable, not sure what's going on, and so he jumps in with this wonderful, like, kind, affectionate word of my children. It's like dear little ones, like this intimate little nickname for his followers. He says, look, I'm going to be with you only a little bit longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now where I'm going you cannot come. Now again, this theme has come up throughout the whole gospel. Jesus is talking about going. No one can follow him. No one can go on the same path that he's on. You won't be able to see him. And the disciples are trying to work this through of like, what does this mean? He said it to the, the enemies, but he's never said that to us. We're his followers. Surely we should be able to go everywhere with him, right? And so he's been hearkening that. It's weird. It's uncomfortable. And so then Jesus moves on to like his key statement. 
And this is the main theme that's going to fill the rest of this whole speech. It's kind of like, you know, when a company releases like their big brand, they'll have their tagline that they want to like just encapsulate everything about them. Like, you know, you have McDonald's, like, ba-da-ba-ba-ba, I'm loving it. Wow, no one else eats McDonald's other than me. You guys are so healthy. Or there's three of you that are shameful, like singing it in your hearts. But brands will have these big things that they push for, right? Like this one word that encapsulates the message. When we have this product, this is what we want you to know about it. And so what Jesus does is he shifts towards something like that. He's getting ready. This final word, if he could say anything to his disciples, if he would want them to remember anything after he's gone away, the one marching order he wants them to carry with him in their whole lives, the thing he's been building towards, everything's been moving towards this one moment. What is that message? He says, a new command, therefore, I give you. Love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That's it. That's the big idea. That's the great hope. That's what Jesus wants to leave his disciples with. That's his rallying cry. And how do the disciples respond to this grand, big idea? Yeah, Lord, where are you going? You notice that? You notice that? Here's this huge idea. Love one another. By, the, by this, the whole world will know that you love. Peter jumps just right over it going back. Yeah, 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 I've heard that. But can we go back to the leaving thing? Because I'm still not fully understanding that. And to me, this is what's fascinating. Because here's Jesus' big rallying cry. The main thing he wants his disciples to hear. But you can see Peter jumps right over it. Skips right by it moves right on to something else. It's almost like, yeah, yeah, I've heard that before. You know, even there's a little bit of irony here that it says it's a new command when, if any of us have read the Old Testament scriptures, love thy neighbor as thyself, love one another, carries through the law all the time. And so you have this sense of Peter almost being like, yeah, yeah, I've heard that before. Can we move on to something else that's more interesting? And to me, that's fascinating. Because how many of us, when we see that phrase... Do we just jump on and move on to something else? Do we like, yeah, 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 we've, we've heard that, Jesus. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's all cool. And we end up being like, we read a passage that that, that big, Jesus' rallying cry for his new people, and our response is, yeah, that's cool. Can we move on to the more interesting thing, Jesus? And I think there's a variety of reasons of why we can often feel that way. There's uh, different reasons why we can come at that angle. I mean, for some of us, when we hear that phrase, love one another as I have loved you, some of us will be here and be like, look, Colin, that's nice and everything, but I've been at church way too long. <laughs> I know it doesn't work out that smoothly. I've been in those small groups. I've been to those church membership meetings. I know how this plays out. Like, it's cool, Jesus, but it's a little bit idealistic. And it, it's easy for us to think that way, eh? Because one of our natural things is, we can assume that the, the early church did it fine and we're having all the issues. But we even romanticize the early church around this. Like we have that passage in Acts 2. You're probably familiar with it. It's that one where there's a whole bunch of new Christians and it's this beautiful passage where it talks about how they meet together and they pray together and they all pool their resources together so that no one is in need and no one has any wants. And it's easy for us to romanticize and be like, that's what the church is always supposed to be. But if we've actually read our New Testaments a little bit further, we can know clearly that's not the case. 
In fact, in the chapter of, in Acts, just a few chapters later, you have a story of a couple that ends up hiding money from the church because they don't want to give it all, and then they die, and the church is like, well, I guess God killed them. And we're like, what? Pfft. Doesn't seem like the most loving thing in that church. Or, you know, there's that small, that small instance where Paul has to write a letter telling uh, somebody in the church to stop sleeping with their stepmother. I guess they took that commandment to love one another a bit too seriously. You know? Or there's that other passage where Paul has to write to the early church and say, hey, um, by the way, rich people, could you stop showing up to the communal meals early, eating all the food, getting drunk on the wine, and then leaving the poor people to sit outside? That'd be great. Thanks. Or there's also, in, if you read the book of Ephesians, you'd notice the general minor theme of like just racism you know, that pervades the early church, where you have like the Jews and the Gentiles who just really don't like each other. They don't feel the same. They don't worship the same. And so they're like, can't we just worship in separate places? We'll be separate but equal. And Paul's like, no, no, you can't do that. And so it's easy for us, like throughout the history of the church, that call to love one another, both in the scriptures in the early church, but also today, can feel like pie in the sky, eh? Like, yeah, Jesus, that's a nice ideal. That's a great goal. It's not really realistic. So we'll read that. We'll do our best. But we'll move on to more interesting things, right? Really easy for us to think that. Or perhaps when you hear that phrase, love one another, you go, yeah, right, because you have a picture in your mind of what that Christian love feels like and you don't like it very much. Like maybe when you think about love one another, it's like Christian politeness. You know that Christian nice that you get? It feels like cotton candy, kind of sugary sweet, but it doesn't really have much substance. Like, let me give you an example. Um, there's a book, uh, there's an author by a guy named Adrian Plass. Anyone ever read any of Adrian Plass's work? Oh, he's incredible. He's written some fictional journals of a Christian in the UK just trying to live out life. And he just does a wonderful job of poking fun at all the weird things Christians do. And he has this one passage that just pictures Christian nice so well. It's a... Uh, the main character, Adrian Plass, named it after himself, what he does is when he's sitting in church services, he gets bored with the preacher, and so he always brings a packet of wine gums with him. And when he gets bored, he cracks open the wine gums, and he judges how good a sermon is by how few wine gums he needs to eat. Anyway, so the preacher's preaching, and he's working through the wine gums because it's going on long. And as he's reaching for another wine gum, the preacher who's preaching suddenly shouts out, Lust! And he jumps and drops a wine gum to the ground. As he drops, he reaches down to go get it, and suddenly he feels three people lay hands on his back. <laughs> As he's like, uh-oh. And then after the church service, he has all these people come up to him and give him that knowing, mm. Mm. You know that level of Christian nice that I'm talking about. You know. And it's great, it's nice, but again, it, it is. It feels a little bit like cotton candy because it's sweet, it's pretty surface level, but if that's all you have, you get sick of it real quick, eh? Because it feels superficial, it just covers up the quick basis that we can be polite, but it doesn't have that weight of what you'd imagine Jesus' love to be like. So when you hear that love one another, you might think about cotton candy sweet Christians and think, nah, <laughs> Jesus, that sounds great, but I don't really want to do that. Or maybe when you hear love one another, maybe what you think is you're just exhausted. Maybe that, that, that command comes to you and you just feel the weight of it on your shoulders being like, ah, I can't keep doing this. You know, maybe you are in relationships right now where you felt like you have been giving, 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 trying to love, love, love. You've been in churches your whole life trying to serve, serve, serve. And 
when that command comes again, you're just, the thought of it leaves you feeling paralyzed because you don't feel like you have anything more that you can give. And so you hear that command, and just like Peter, you skip over it saying, look, I'd like to, but I just don't have anything left in the tank. And so I'm just going to try and put up my walls, worry about my three things that I have to worry about, and then everybody else can try and do their love and one another thing later. You know what I mean? There's lots of reasons why we can look at that passage and jump right over it. Because maybe our picture and our understanding of how this, what this love is and how it's supposed to work maybe isn't right. If you're taking a checkup right now of your own reaction, how does it sit to that call, that expectation, that rallying cry of Jesus to love one another as he has loved us? And maybe our understanding of it isn't quite right. Because what happens next in the story to me is so fascinating. There's this wonderful... So if you read the Gospel of John, one of the themes you pick up on heaps is John writes irony into all of the, throughout the whole thing. Like There are just these amazing ironic moments of someone who says they're really clear and they can see and then the next moment someone is blind or they know the way and then there's darkness in the night. You know, like John does all these wonderful plays of irony throughout the whole text and what happens here is another great moment of incredible astounding irony that just reveals maybe why we can jump over that command a little too easily. So Peter, he's jumped on, he's heard that command, skipped right over it, gone to the stuff that he thought was more interesting. Jesus, where are you going? So he asked him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus replied, look, where I'm going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Which for those of us who have read it, sounds like the most creepy and ominous statement ever. Like, you can't go now, but one day. But Peter was oblivious to that, right? And so he charges full steam ahead, saying, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Will you really lay down your life? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Now here's where the irony comes in. This phrase that Peter says here, why can't I follow you? I'm going to lay down my life for you. Jesus picks up again saying, really, you're going to lay down your life for me? And if you've read the Gospel of John, what you're going to notice is there's a phrase that keeps coming up through the whole book. I will lay down my life for you. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And in fact, just a few passages ago, when Jesus tells us to love one another as I have loved you, what's the thing Jesus literally just did for them? He just spent time washing their feet, getting down and dirty, allowing their dirt and their filth to come upon him as he washed them clean. And as we looked at that a couple of weeks ago, what did we notice? That foot washing, again, was pointing towards Jesus' death on the cross. This act of love and self-giving, it was like a foretaste, a foreshadowing of the great act of self-giving that Jesus is going to do on the cross. And so this whole time, whenever we talk about love in John, this one theme comes up. Love is defined by laying down your life for one another. This act of self-giving towards someone who doesn't need it or someone who doesn't deserve it. And even though it costs us and it's painful and it's difficult, we give of ourselves for the other that kind of love. And so this is what's so ironic in this passage, is that... Jesus commands his disciples to love one another as he has loved them by laying down their lives for one another. Peter immediately says, 
I'm going to do that. I'm going to lay down my life for you. And Jesus looks back and says, actually, you're not. This kind of love you're trying to embody, what you're trying to do, you're, you're not going to do that. Because in fact, we know from the story, when the pressure hits, when Jesus is arrested and Peter is confronted, is he willing to lay down his life for Jesus? Is that call to love able to sustain him and carry him through? No. He denies him and runs away. It's this beautiful passage all trying to talk about how we engage with this concept and this idea of loving one another. Loving means laying down your life for someone else and being willing to engage in that. But here's the fascinating thing for me, is that for so many of us, when we jump over it, if we're just trying to make it happen and do it in our own strength, we, like Peter, will fall short. We won't be able to make it happen. Our own selfishness will take over. We'll be justifying our own reasons. We'll have good logical reasons of why we're going to stop loving as Jesus has called us to. And like Peter, we'll miss it. But when you notice in Peter's life is there's this key transition on the other side of the cross. See, on the other side of the cross, Peter has this encounter with God. Peter had his feet washed and he kind of understood, but when Jesus died and looked at him and had to restore him, Peter had this encounter of realizing how selfish he was. He realized his own pain, his own difficulty, his own journey, and he received God's love, God's hope, God's forgiveness, God's freedom, and suddenly you see this transformation in Peter. Someone who wasn't able to love as Jesus called him to love was then able to spend the rest of his life loving as God had called him to. See, once we have that experience, that understanding of what God has done for us, once we feel that radical forgiveness in our hearts, once we sense that freedom that says, I have shown my everything to God and he still loves me, that is where Jesus says and where the scriptures show that we begin to be able to engage in the kind of love that God has called us to. And so as you're taking your checkup, where are you sitting with this? How are you doing? Are your relationships characterized by the kind of love, the rallying cry that Jesus calls here? And if they're not, how are you doing it understanding the great, wonderful act that Jesus has done for you? In your own heart, in your own life, as you engage with that story, have you understood how great God loves you? Have you understood how much God has done to redeem you, to give you a hope, a plan, and a future, to restore you, to engage with the worst parts of you and still look at you and say, I love you. Because once you get a taste of how that feels, once you get an encounter of that, it begins to radically transform how you react to others. Because truth is, if we look at Jesus' call to love one another, it, if we're honest, feels a little bit depressing and tough, right? Like, Jesus has called us to love one another as he has loved us, which means Jesus has called us to lay down our lives for one another. And that is incredibly painful. It's exhausting. If you've hung out in church long enough, you suddenly know that there are people that you don't like, that you don't want to show love to, because they're difficult, or they have crazy theology, or you just don't like their style, or I don't know what it is. And that having to give that love over and over is an incredibly painful thing. It's difficult. It's hard. It's, 
it, it feels like dying a little bit. If you've had one of those relationships in your family where there's been a breakdown in relationship and you've had to give, 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 then you know what I'm talking about. You know what it feels to have to keep on giving and how tough it is and how painful it is. And it's so easy to just want to give up. It's so easy to logically justify it and put walls around it and move on and just skip over it just like Peter did. Let's move on to other stuff, Jesus. But this is why we need to keep coming back to these words, having a checkup to reassess ourselves. Because though it feels like death, the great hope of the stories, as we engage in that love that is painful and difficult and messy, it's in that death that we experience Jesus' resurrection. It's going through that pain that we understand that the love and life that God promises us enables us to love as we never thought we could. It's enabled to embody this great rallying cry of Jesus to love one another as he has loved us. And by this, the whole world will know that we are his disciples. But I recognize that that can all be a bit theoretical, right? So let's, let me give you an example. I'm going to finish with the story of Charles Simeon. Anybody ever heard of this guy, Charles Simeon? Anyone? One or two? Ha, great. It's a great illustration for the rest of you then, isn't it? Ah. Um, Charles Simeon, obviously lived a long time ago, 1759 to 1836. So he lived in the UK and was born, born in England, and this was the time of the Anglican Church. But the, the way the church worked there was very different from how it is now. So the Anglican Church was so tied in with the state that everyone was Christian because they were British. You know, like if you were English, you were Christian because you were at an Anglican Church. And so having a living, expressive faith was actually quite rare. It wasn't a very common thing. And so this was right at the time of like Jonathan Edwards and um, George Whitfield. The beginning of what was called the evangelical revival was just beginning to brim up. And what this evangelical revival was saying was that it's not enough to just logically agree that there's a God. It's not enough to just be present in a church. You need to have an experience of Jesus. You need to know who he is and what he's done for you. And this was just beginning this new trend of the Anglican church. And so Charles grew up during this time. And he grew up, and he was, I mean, he was born to pretty wealthy, rich parents, and he kind of went on his life doing his thing, kind of going along, and then he went to university, and then as part of university, you had to go to like a communion service, a mass or a Eucharist service. And when he got called to go to that, suddenly he was like, ah, I don't want to go to that. In fact, in his diary, he recorded, he said, Satan is more prepared to attend the communion than I. So he was not stoked about his own condition because he was like, I'm just not, I mean, he was brash, he was ill-tempered, he would lash out at people quickly, he was quite prideful, um, he just wanted to get a really good position, get some good money, so he just didn't feel like engaging in some sort of religious thing was right. So he did some study where he was like, all right, I'll study up to try and know to be like proper and ready for communion. But as he was reading, he came across the scriptures and he came across writers that started to talk about Jesus' forgiveness and his own sense of unworthiness and how he didn't feel proper or able to come before God suddenly began to lift within him as he suddenly realized that the Jesus that we know and love looks at each of us, sees our sin, knows who we are at our worst and still says, I love you, I have died for you to remove the weight of that burden from you and lead you into a new life of freedom and hope. And as he read this, it was like his soul came alive. He brought life, he got joy, and then on that Sunday morning when he had to go to communion service, he woke up saying, praise God, hallelujah, Christ is risen, to which his roommates were like, what is going on? Like it was this weird thing that they didn't understand. And so 
Charles had this basically evangelical revival on his own. He suddenly began to understand God as living and personal and breathing. And that didn't work out so popularly in in the context because it was still seen as weird or fringe or he was like a nutcase, right, for believing that. And so he went to university and when he finished university, he was looking for a church to go pastor at. And so he got appointed to this church in Cambridge. And when he arrived, he found out that none of the church wanted him there. Like, they didn't want him. So it wasn't like Baptist churches where you call your own pastor. Back then, it was like some higher up in London said, you're going here, and you went. And so he shows up, and no one wants him there. So he goes to preach on his first morning, and nobody shows up. They just don't go, because there was this other assistant pastor who was there. He was kind of like a lay deacon, and they wanted him to lead the church. And so on an afternoon service, the lay preacher would preach, and the whole church would go to that. And it was this really awkward thing. And so Charles felt really uncomfortable. So he wrote back to the Anglican diocese saying, hey, they don't want me. I should just step down so you can find another leader. And the diocese wrote back saying, look, you can, but we're never going to hire that guy anyway. We don't think he's suitable to actually lead a church. So if you move on, we're just going to get somebody else. We're never going to get that guy. And so Charles thought, well, I might as well stay because if it's not going to be the person they want, it might as well be me. And so he, he begins to push through. And now I just want you to be filtering this through, love one another, as you picture what this guy went through. So he would preach, and not only would no one come, at the time, they had like pew rental services. I'm not even kidding. In the pews, rich people could actually rent out pews so that on the Sunday morning they could come, and they were locked with a key that they owned because they rented. They would unlock their pews so that they could sit like in a good seat to hear the preaching. And so not only when Simeon would preach, they wouldn't come, but they would leave all their pews locked so that no one could sit in the rows. And then, so anyone who came from like the university who wanted to hear, you know, be a part of this church, they had to stand in the aisles. So imagine a Sunday morning where all the chairs are empty and you have people just standing in the aisles. And so that's what Simeon has to work with. And so then he's like, well, all right. So Simeon out of his own pocket goes and buys chairs and pews to fill the alleyways with. And then right before the service, the church warden comes in, they pick up all the pews and chuck them outside so that the area is clear again. So all of his chairs are like ruined now by the wind and the water so that no one again could sit. And it gets worse on top of this. Now imagine a pastor trying to love this church as Christ has loved him. What would you do? So in this afternoon service, because they were really Christian and liked hearing people preach multiple times, um, this afternoon service, the lay preacher would preach. Now, you think that after a while, the lay preacher would be like, look, this is it, I'll just move on. No, no. Lay, che- lay preacher guy, for that afternoon st- service, stuck around not for like six months, not for a year. For five years, this lay preacher preached the afternoon service, and they would not let Charles speak in the afternoon service. He just could not engage with him in that place. And then even after five years, when this lay guy finished, you would think that they'd be like, all right, five years, Charles is sticking around, we might as well get him to come in. No, no. They still didn't like him, so they got somebody else to come in for an additional seven years. For 12 years, there was a service at his church that Charles was not allowed to speak at. Can you imagine ministering to a church like that? What does loving that church look like? And so Charles, again, just had to faithfully learn what it meant to love them as Christ has loved them. And so he didn't belittle them, he didn't attack them, he just faithfully trying to keep preaching, trying to keep serving, And he tried to come up with other ideas, in fact. He tried to do a late evening service because he thought, oh, well, I can't do the afternoons. Maybe I'll do a late evening service with some of the young people from the university. Tries to set that up, 
It goes fine for one week. The following week, the university people come together and they arrive to find that the church warden has locked the building. So Charles and the university students physically cannot get into the church together. It's crazy, isn't it? And this guy, again, had to learn to love them as Christ has loved the church. But it wasn't just his church that he was having issues with. Charles also had issues at the university where he was also employed as a lecturer. Again, all the university people thought Charles was this weird, fringe, cult-like character. And they just wouldn't engage with him at all. They thought he was nuts. In fact, Charles wrote in one of his diaries, after he'd been at the university for like 10 years, he wrote in his diary like, oh, what a blessed and marvelous day it has been. For one of the other staff, staff members was willing to walk with me for 15 minutes across the campus. That was his sign of it was a good day. In 10 years, someone walked with him for 15 minutes? That was his good day? Crazy. And the university even ended up penalizing any students he got along with. So any students who liked Charles and wanted to engage with that more evangelical form of faith, they were punished. A lot of their academic achievements and honors were stripped away because they were seen as associating with the wrong person. And so Charles has to engage with this and learn what it means to love them as Christ has loved the church. What's remarkable is the way that he did so. You know how long he stayed at his church in Cambridge? 54 years. 54 years he walked with those people. And even when they got married, he would marry them. When they died, he would bury them. And he loved them. And he journeyed with them. And in the church, over time, begun got won over, not because Charles was an amazing preacher. He wasn't. He wasn't the most incredible speaker. He wasn't the most dynamic, upfront man. They were won over by the way in which he persevered to love them as Christ had called him to. And it became one of the great bustling centers of faith within Cambridge. But not only that, his work at the university literally changed the shape and the face of faith in England and different parts of the world. See, what he would do is in these afternoons after he got locked out of the church, what he decided was, well, look, I'll just have him over my house. Now, Charles was a bachelor his whole life, and he just wanted to you know, help invest in the next gener generation of leaders. So he had a one, small one-bedroom apartment, and to any students who were studying faith or theology, they found that at the university there was no practical training for them in terms of like, how do you preach? How do you counsel someone through grief? How do you engage someone with scripture? There was just none of that training available. And so Charles said, well, look, I'll do it. And he started hosting these Sunday evening conversation nights where he would train them. He would talk to them about what it means to follow Jesus, to give your whole life into following this one man from Nazareth. And it grew like crazy. It started with a few but over the course of time, you ended up getting like 60 or 70 people packed into one or two bedroom units, just like literally wedged in to try and learn and listen from this guy. And they all began to pick up that Jesus wasn't just a system to be believed in, but he was a person to follow. There was a life experience that happened when you followed Jesus. And they began to carry this form of faith out with them. It, it was living, it was vibrant, but the problem was they would graduate and they couldn't find any placements. Because back then, to find a placement, you usually had to have the right money to grease the right palms to get into the right church. And so Charles, out of his own money, would go and he would pay for placements for students from this course. And he did that over and over and over. Hundreds of times, he would pay out of his own pocket to make sure some of his students could find a place to go serve and to minister. And over the course of his tenure, he ended up planting at least 200 different ministers in churches all across the country. 
Now, can you imagine what happens when suddenly 200 churches are filled with faith-filled, passionate, radical Jesus followers? Faith began to bubble up across the UK. And pretty soon, the whole country, the evangelical revival used to be, evangelicals used to be this fringe cult-like movement. Pretty soon, it bubbled up and swept the entire nation. And that began to influence policies. You have like the uh, William Wilberforce, who stopped slavery. He was influenced by this evangelical revival that Simeon helped to foster. Or to bring it home a little bit, there was a young student um, who was passionate about God and passionate about the gospel and was engaged in these conversation parties and heard Charles Simeon one day put out a call saying, it is our duty to spread the gospel to the farthest reaches of the world. Jesus has called us to go to the ends of the earth and we must answer that call. And so a young Samuel Marsden took up the call to go be a missionary to a country on the farthest reaches of the earth and brought the gospel here to our shores here in New Zealand in the 1800s. Our story of faith is influenced by a man who continued to love even when it was difficult, even when it was challenging, and even when there was nothing he was getting back I mean, can you imagine? I'd get frustrated with you guys after a week if no one said anything nice about me. He did like 54 years. 54 years he persevered with the community of faith and literally the state of the church is not the same because this one man held on to these words. And so it's so easy for us to see that and to skip over it. It's so easy for our preconceived notions and our false ideas about what love is to have us move on to something else. But Simeon helps us to remember why Jesus wanted this to be our rallying cry. Because as we engage and we understand the great love that God has for us, then we are able to move forward and share that radical, radical love with others. And here's the thing that that strikes me when I look at Simeon. Those Those are the dates on his name. And when he heard this call, when he understood God's work in him, during this time frame, he changed the shape of faith of everyone that he knew. Each one of us one day will have some date brackets under our name. Each one day, we're going to have some brackets that are say, this is our opportunity, this is our chance to engage with this radical call of Jesus and allow it to transform us and become our mode of operation. Or not. So in your spiritual checkup, as you look at your life and your love, how are you doing? Because if we do answer this call, if we do allow it to transform us, the world, the whole world will know that we are his disciples. So can we stand as we pray? Jesus, we hear your words echo to us today. We hear your command to love one another. That is, you have loved us, so we must love one another. And that by this, everyone will know that we are your disciples if we love one another. Jesus, we hear these words, and truth be told, it is very hard to follow them sometimes. We often have very different pictures of what that love looks like, We might think it might feel a bit naive, idealistic, pie in the sky, 
Maybe we're frustrated with how we've seen it outworking in the past. Maybe we're just too weary to think about taking up that call in our own strength. Jesus, would you speak to us now and reveal to us our own hearts? Would you help us to understand? Jesus, would you forgive us of our selfishness that so easily turns our whole worldview into thinking about ourselves? Would you forgive us of our pride where we so easily justify who is worthy of love and who is not? Would you forgive us of our fear and our doubt that says we can't engage, it's too hard, it's too difficult? Lord, we open ourselves up to you now and say, Jesus, would you transform us? Jesus, would your love fill us? We long to know what Peter knew after the cross. We long to know your forgiveness and your love and your acceptance that comes as we open up ourselves to you and give ourselves to you right as we are. Lord, would you lift, would you resurrect something in us for those of us who feel weary about that love, who don't feel like we have anything more to give? Jesus, would you resurrect a new life within us? that we might have a greater understanding of what you've done for us and that we might love as you have loved us. And Jesus, would you open up our eyes to see how we might live this commandment today in our lives, in our neighborhoods, in our families, and in our communities, and here in our church. God, restore within us a vision of what it could look like if we love one another as you have loved us. And Spirit, we ask that you would give us the strength to humble ourselves before you and answer your call. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, as we go forward from here, church, I don't know what your checkup is like, but let's continue to keep doing it. Again, this call is the rallying cry of the church. Some of us might need to check ourselves up on it once a week. Some of us might need to keep looking at it once a, once a day. Some of us probably once an hour. But let it be the call that we answer and we give our lives to. If you would like prayer for anything at all, there's a team of people here that would love to pray for you. But may you go in the love of God. May the Lord bless you. May he cause his face to shine upon you. And may the Lord give you his peace. God bless.